Before I introduce the guest on today's episode, I want to ask you to check out the No More Wasted Days podcast. My friend Sarah and I share our tips and strategies to help you and your friends navigate your alcohol-free journey. Welcome to Living My Breastless Life podcast. I'm your host, HPG. On season three of the podcast, we're diving in to the helping profession. I have found that almost always there's a catalytic event that leads people to help others. You'll hear a variety of folks share what they do, why they do it, and the unique ways that they help. This season will mostly be guest interviews with some fascinating people and a few surprises for y'all along the way. So let's go. Go. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Kim Bean. We have a lot in common. We're both social workers, podcasters, and cancer survivors. We chat about what she does for her day job, what led her to social work, and what her future holds. I really enjoyed my chat with Kim, and I think you will too. So Kim, tell us what you do. Well, I read energy and I tell people what I think is coming Uh, as an intuitive. I like, I sense like the big answers to the big questions and also the nuances of like, what is a possibility if you were to go in this area to that area? That's, that's how I explain intuition and me being an intuitive. I also am a hospital social worker. So like I work and I, I make the joke, not joke that I'm a glorified travel agent because I send you to the fancy resort, which is the skilled nursing after you've been in the hospital to get stronger for rehab. And then I set up your transportation on how to get there, whether it's going to be family versus an ambulance. So like glorified travel agent slash intuitive. I was also what you described a glorified travel agent at a very large trauma hospital. So I feel you. And like the other thing is the resorts you're sending people to aren't always the resorts they want to be in. And so then, I mean, there's times where I do get to send them to a resort they want to be in. I'm like, listen, if you get into this place, a golden ticket, you don't turn it down. Right. But then there's other places where I'm like, I'm really sorry that I'm sending you to this like dump of a motel. Yeah. It's a fine art in, in social work of like manipulating the information and being honest. And most of the time, what I try to be as honest, like, family member, like I've even had people look at me and I'm like, well, if it were my mom, would I send my mom to this facility? And I'd be like, the one you chose, I would like. The one, if they chose a facility that I would send my mom to, I answer that question. If it's a facility that they, I wouldn't send my mom to, I say things like, well, your options are limited. We have an interesting way of framing things. If you ever hear a hospital social worker tell you your options are limited, yeah, your options are limited. But that really is what that means. It means there's not much we can do. What led you to being a social worker? So I was a teacher for 12 years. 
I was a middle school and high school English teacher for 12 years. I did do one brief year at a private school, which, but I was at the public schools and around year 10 and a half, I stuck my hand inside my collarbone and I felt a lump, which people would say, you know, there are times I put out my hand and I find things that I'm looking for before my body realizes it's there. I've like lost my phone and pointed to my phone before I saw my phone with my eyes. So like, I think my body helped me find. I had my hand deep in my collarbone. So I'm probably tapping my microphone as I do this. And I found the lump. And I was on the phone with my best friend and she was like, you're going to the doctor tomorrow. And so I went to the doctor and got a CT scan. I think I found it on like April 1st. And it took us until May 15th to get an actual diagnosis of Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then June 1st, I started what I didn't want. I did not want treatment. And I started treatment on June 1st. I was freed from treatment October and went back teaching in November. So literally was like six months of my life got swallowed. And um, it took another year and a half for me to get really strong and to figure out what I wanted. And while I was, I was the only, up until then, I was the first and might still be only person my oncologist ever had to hospitalize with Hodgkin's because my body rejected the port, which basically meant my arm blood clotted and my neck blood clotted all the way up. And I was, they gave me Fragment as a blood thinner and I had to shoot it in my belly every night. While I was hospitalized for a number of days, a total of nine days as a result of this blood clotting that was going on. And of course, they were worried about strokes and all the things that blood clots do, right? And so um, I had a hospital social worker that was terrible. <laughs> she was so bad. She was young and she like promised me home care. And I thought a nurse was going to come out and check on me because I was so worried about the blood clots. And then like I went back to my oncologist and I was like, I thought a nurse was coming out to visit me. And then, and then, and then when I got readmitted to the hospital, the social worker came and found me and kind of yelled at me for telling on her. And making it sound like she made it sound like she was, I was, she was sending home care to come and see me. And I was like, you, you said I was getting home care to come and see me. And she was like mad at me. And I'm also like chemo brained and like, I'm like, there are ways to do this that are better than how she did it. And I'm like, I can do better than this. And so I, when I finally got up and out. And the other thing that happened was when I was went back to teaching, the school I taught in had five sending trailer parks. My principal loved to give me the really, really hard kids. Like he loved to give them to me. And when I went to him before I got sick, I was like, are you trying to burn me out? He was like, when they're with you, we know where they are. He's like, well, anytime they go with anybody else in the building, we lose them because they leave the classroom and we know, and the teacher doesn't care. I don't want to say teacher doesn't care enough, but the teacher trying to run a class. And so if they lock out, it makes it easier to teach when they're not there. He's like, you keep them in the classroom. And he goes, and then since you keep them in, you get them. And I'm like, so you're going to punish me for being a good teacher is what you're basically telling me. And so he gave me all of these students that were really hard. And I would go up to them and be like, listen, you only have this one opportunity right now to really do this well. What do you want to do in life? So I would go up to the really hard kids and be like, what are your goals? And they would be like, to get high. And I'd be like, are you, do you want to graduate? And they'd be like, I don't see the point in that because I'm just going to go get high. And so it really, it really became like, why am I doing this? And I was watching people who were desperate to live in waiting rooms, like people who were like, I want everything to do with my life. I want everything to do with my life and I don't want to die. And so... 
I, I realized I couldn't, I couldn't live in the dichotomy of people who were desperate to have a life and kids who were throwing their lives away. And so I, I went back to help the people who really wanted help. That's why I, that's why I left teaching. That's awesome. Do you, are you loving what you do now? Do you love social work and in the acute care setting or the hospital rather? No, I don't. I don't. I don't love what I do. It's extremely stressful. I, I say all the time that when I stand, when I'm, when I'm working with a patient and a family and I'm working with the facility, I'm the in between. So I'm in between where they want to be versus what the facility is saying they can and can't do. And I want everybody to go to the golden ticket location, right? I want everybody to be able to get in, but there are like criteria or the golden ticket locations have like parameters of what they will and won't take. And a difficult patient is not always something that they will take. And so if it's a straightforward like hip replacement, they might take it, right? But if it's not something so straightforward and a person has a little complication or a little behaviors or a little blah, 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 then they don't get to go where they where they were at where it would be perfect for them to go. And in my view, right? The other thing is I have doctors who look at me and make decisions that I'm like, are you really going to do this to me? So it's my responsibility. And they turn to me when a discharge order goes in and they're like, okay, what are you doing about this? If the discharge order is in, it's your job to get this patient out. What are you doing about that? If a, if a doctor decides to put in a discharge order at five o'clock on a Friday, hey, does that mean I'm supposed to stay? I'm already a half an hour late. I'm already supposed to be leaving at 4.30. I'm here till five. You put in your discharge order at five o'clock. Does this mean you expect me to stay till seven to figure this out? Because that's not happening. And then I feel pressure and I feel bad that I'm leaving that for somebody else. So this is why I'm stepping into like being an intuitive because you can't be stressed out and be intuitive at the same time because you cut off your intuition. And you have to breathe more. You have to breathe more intentionally in order to be an intuitive. And to really hear your intuition, you need to be in a better space in general. And so building me as an intuitive means I need to be more open and expansive and less stressed out and all the other things. Yeah. So how are you taking that step forward to to foster your intuition and, and maybe leave social work behind? Well, I have been working on my intuition since my 20s. Like I'm 47 now. So like when I was 20, 21, 20, I started to like really start to wonder how to, I felt like there was more to know than what we could see. And I, I'm an empath. So I was like, I picked up on everybody's emotions already. Like I already knew the first way of knowing intuition was knowing, I knew how everybody felt. I could just be like, you are pissed and you are happy. And they wouldn't even have to say anything. My energy would just bump into their energy and I'd be like, oh, I'm pissed. <laughs> why, why am I pissed? I'm not pissed because I'm pissed. I'm pissed because you're pissed. <laughs> and so I just started to like really open up that ability of turning off my, it was an actual practice I had to go through of turning off my left brain and allowing my right brain to flourish. I actually did it inside the church. I was a Christian at the time. I'm not now, but I was then. And I was really seeking the Holy Spirit. And I thought the gifts, and I still believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. And they're not just necessarily gifts of the Holy Spirit. I believe they're gifts of spirit, right? And so it's taken me a long time and a long process to like figure all of this out in my own head. But at the time I was deeply embedded in the church and my best friend's mom gave me a book and it talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And she said that speaking in tongues was a thing that you could still do. And I was like, really? 
that's fascinating. So I started to teach myself how to speak in tongues. And anytime I got myself into the right, open, expansive space to be able to do it, I would start to open my mouth to say something. And then my left brain would get all excited and be like, what are you going to say? And I'd be like, what? And they'd be like, what are you going to say? And it would shut it down because my left brain then took over and it was no longer open and expansive. And so it took a long time for me to be able to quiet the left brain and just allow the right brain to the, the, the open expansive space to open up and in. And since then, and yeah, since then I've been pressing in and I'm like, what, what does that look like? And then how do you read the energy? And then, you know, if the, if there were prophets in the Bible, why can't there be people who can read the energy and sense what spirit is saying for people today? And so I just stepped into it that way. And then Hodgkins, after Hodgkins, I was like, I'm not certain about God. When you stare death in the face, I was like, I, I'm not certain about God. I'm not certain I want to know a God as angry as the God I, I've experienced. And life is too short. And I've put a lot of things on hold and I'm done putting things on hold and I'm done with judgment and I'm done with condemnation. I'm a lot more compassionate and I totally get that it's not anybody's fault. They wind up where they are and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps isn't always so easy. And I became a lot more. I know it sounds terrible, but I became a lot more loving outside of the church. I I had a whole moment where like there was in my social work classes, they were talking about the bar. I always forget the name of the bar. I always read something like Sitting Bull, but it's not Sitting Bull. It was in New York City in 1976. There was a bar where a whole bunch of like, it was a gay bar and there were a whole bunch of like LGBTQIA people, although they weren't labeled that at the time, in the bar. And there were a whole bunch of police officers outside the bar. And they were ready to raid the bar. For me, it became an existential, existential crisis because I was like, where's Jesus? There's only one place Jesus would be in that moment. And it's the same, it's the same place where he stood when he said to everybody, you without sin, throw the first stone. And I was, he's in the bar. I'm like, he's in the bar because that's exactly where he was in the Bible. In the Bible, he was in the bar with all the LGBTQIA people. And so I was like, I can't be, I can't, I can't be a part of this religion anymore because this religion is full of contradictions and full of holes and full of a bunch of bullshit. I can't, I can't stomach anymore. And then I was like, well, then I can't be listening to the Holy Spirit either. And I shut down my intuition and said, we're not listening to it anymore because I can only do it if it's because I'm not going to disrespect the Godhead and I'm not going to disrespect the Holy Spirit because I believe in the Holy Spirit too much for that. And then as I had life journeys and did a lot in meditation and did a lot of work on myself and I did a lot of healing, I came out the other end. That's all really fascinating. My wife and I went by Stonewall in August of this year, and it was really powerful to see. And I know a lot about LGBT plus history, and it was just really moving to see it. So you also have a podcast. I do. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. I've been taking people on to talk about like what opens you up and what made you flower and what makes you come alive and how do you transform your life and how do you live a life you love? Because that's my fascination. Like, how do you live a life you love? How do you get out of the rut and get into a life you love? Which is why I left teaching. I wanted a life I loved. And then I got into social work because I really thought making a difference would really be different. And then I was like, I'm... I'm not flying and soaring here. And so then I, I I started to build myself as a brand and I'm like building myself up into my own business because that's going to make me feel like I'm living a life of love. And then um, my marketing team sat down and they were like, Kim? And I was like, what? And they were like, you need to be doing the work you need to be doing. 
And they were like, and we are like telling you what that work is, but we're like three or five degrees off because it's not coming from you and your own space. It's coming from our space. And so if I wanted to get to England from here, I'm right outside of Philadelphia and I'm three to five degrees off from my takeoffs point, I'm going to wind up in Italy or someplace else. I'm not going to wind up in England. So they made me sit down and quote unquote, go in the hole. I need to hold W-H-O, I mean, H-O-L-E to be whole, W-H-O-L-E. And I sat down and I realized the only thing that makes me come alive and makes me feel like I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing is when I'm tapped into my intuition and feeding and giving that to other people and giving and giving people the ability to know who the, what their intuition is so that they can lead lives they love or help them find their direction and maybe be two to five degrees off. At least it's a starting point that they didn't even have before because they're probably 45 to 50 degrees off, maybe even 180 degrees off, right? And if I can get them at least on a path that's a lot closer to the path they're supposed to be on, they'll figure out their way on the way. And so I want to teach people how to use their intuition and I want to give intuitive words. So in January, I'm starting in January of 2024, we're starting up. I'm already starting to do it. People are hopping onto my podcast and I am giving them an intuitive reading. And so if anybody wants an intuitive reading, you can hop onto my website, kimbeam.com is what will be in January of 2024, but it's Social Work Your Life right now. And at Social Work Your Life or at kimbeam.com, because we're going to route Social Work Your Life to Kimbeam, you can sign up for an intuitive reading. And I'll be happy to tell you what I think energy is saying. That's awesome. I'm always fascinated by readings and... I always have been. I remember being little, like in elementary school, being gra- like gravitating toward that, like in bookstores and, and whatnot. I'm from the South, as you can probably tell from my accent. And that was not welcome, let me just say. Wait, where was, where was, where wasn't your accent welcome? No, my accent, but well, it just is, but like I'm from North Carolina. So the, the, uh, Southern Baptist culture that does not embrace like baby intuitives or, you know, what they may call witchcraft. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a hundred percent with you. And people have told me I'm witchy and people have told me, right. That I'm, 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 because I also channel, right. I channel, I'll, I'll step into spirit and be like, and pull it down and say, this is what I think I'm sensing. And I will, I will talk to like, if there's a specific, most of the time I talk to my higher self, right. My higher self, my best version, my youest, my, my meest, me, most me version there is, right. That's what I consider my highest self, my most pure soul, perfect self that hangs out up in the heavens with the soul, right. The whole, the whole bit of me that is up there. I, I talk to that one the most, but I'll sometimes like channel an angel or I'll sometimes channel a, a, a master. And so like people are like, that's it. You're letting spirits in. And you're going to be filled with them, and then you'll be like demonic, and you're going to you're going to hell. Yeah, I've been told I've gone to hell a lot because I mean I'm a lesbian, so I'm just used to it at this point. But can I can I find that that actually makes my eyes and my throat really tight? I am I am really sorry. I'm used to it. There's one thing to say it's okay, and I'm used to it, and it's another thing to like know that it's really not okay. Oh yeah, it's totally not okay. I I totally get that. <laughs> But I mean, you really do get used to it. Like, I think I came out like close to 20 years ago. And you, it's just like, I always want people to know, like, we're just a quote unquote normal family, whatever that means. We're just trying to like pay our power bill and get our little girl to pre-K. And my wife always teases like, are we going to be Glinda the good queers? And I'm like, well, why not? You know, 
let's just live our lives. <laughs> We're just normal people. I'm just trying to get in my car and go do what I need to do and get home. And and be happy. That's really all people want, right? Is to be able to live happy. A nice little life, whatever, however that's defined by me. And I have to say, okay, so when I was at that five sending trailer park right over the Mason-Dixon line, technically in the South because I was in Maryland, right? There was so much hate and fear and there was so much judgment and so much anger and so much poverty. And I really felt people being really mean to other people and not a lot of like, we're all in this big giant soupy morass together. Oh yeah, I feel you. Yeah, I totally feel you. Yeah, and we are in this big giant stupid morass together, right? Like, and beating each other up doesn't help the growing process at no. all. No, it does not. It does not. So, Kim, tell us where we can find you. I'm at socialworkyourlife.com. I'm also at, I'm going to be in January of 2024. I'm going to be kimbeam.com. And then I have a podcast. The Intuitive Insights podcast is coming out in January, but you can find the Social Work Your Life podcasts with Kim Beam. So basically, if you search Kim Beam, like Jim Beam, only I don't drink. So there you go, right? Like, (laughs) yeah. Awesome. I'll make sure to link that in my show notes. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Kim. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living My Breastless Life. Head over to Instagram and follow According to HPG to stay connected to the show. Go get your mammograms.